This is The Ascending Life with Pastor Josh Blevins of Grace Calvary Chapel. His prideful fall was that he wanted that worship that belonged to God. He still longs for it. And he will use all sorts of lies to try to stop the Christian from giving themselves to the cause of Christ. So how should we respond? We respond by blocking out the enemy's voice and focusing on the one we're worshiping rather than the voices around us. We need to let Jesus defend our worship. Nothing given to Jesus in worship is ever wasted. How can a life poured out in sacrificial love to the one true treasure ever be a waste? Today, Pastor Josh will show you that the preciousness of the treasure is displayed for all the world to see and what you're willing to waste for it. Are you wasting your life on what is truly valuable? If you pour out your life and you worship for the all-surpassing treasure that's found in Jesus Christ and seek to treasure Him above all else, you will never be left wanting. Now, here's Pastor Josh in the book of John chapter 12 as he continues his message, Wasted Worship. Imagine being, and I know it's hard to put yourself in this spot because, of course, Jesus brought complete liberation to women in a culture that was very oppressive towards them. But you have a room full of men, and you have Mary and Martha who is serving, and she's already putting herself out there to do this act that no one else would understand except for Jesus. She's already putting herself on the line. And then right in the middle of it, the holy spiritual guys over here who are Jesus' disciples start criticizing her in front of everyone. Would have been enough to make anyone get up and run out of the room in tears, completely embarrassed and ashamed. And yet, Mary is unfazed. She's unmoved. It's almost as if the presence of Jesus is so beautiful and so wonderful and so special that it blocks out all of the opinions of other people. She was not distracted by the discomfort that her act of worship was causing the others around her. And I think even perhaps the criticism from others, and we're going to learn Judas's motive in a moment, but the other disciples possibly were actually criticizing Mary not out of a place of logic, but out of a place of conviction. Man, I've never worshipped Jesus like that. I've never given Jesus anything that valuable. And it's amazing sometimes what conviction will do to people. It will either cause them to humble themselves or it will cause them to criticize the people that are the worshipers. As we spoke about, this was not Mary's first time being criticized for her worship decisions. In Luke chapter 10, we read that Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered her and said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part, 
which will not be taken away from her. Jesus is always defending Mary's decision to worship. He's always defending Mary's decision to prioritize him above everyone else. He doesn't apologize for it. In fact, he challenges the other people who are criticizing the value and the worth of what she's doing. She says, no, she has chosen the right thing. You guys are all about your religious duties and all about your good works and all about your service, but Mary cares and understands that none of that really matters. There's no real relationship. If there's no real worship going on. I wonder how many might be challenged in here. I know that it's a trap I fall into frequently. Hearing the prompting of the Holy Spirit, reading the word of God, which clearly defines to me his will and what he calls me to and what he asks of me. And my first thought is either, what's it going to cost me? kind of need to make my decision based on what it's going to cost me. Or, what will so-and-so think? And what will they say? And this is where I think, I love what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. He says, do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. There are times when following Jesus requires to let go of what everyone else thinks about it and care more about what he thinks about it. Of course, we should always honor and respect others. Of course, we should seek wise counsel. I'm not talking about those types of things. I'm talking about when we have clear directive from the word of God, from the truth, we need to boldly stand in it regardless of what the others around us are saying whether it be out of their own conviction or their own criticism or their own internal motives. Third question that this story brings to mind, is Jesus worth more than the enemy's lies? Is Jesus worth more than the enemy's lies? Talked about this last week a little bit, that Satan is a liar from the beginning. He lies because he is the father of lies. He lies out of his own resources. He is a constant liar. And here Judas, the one who will betray Jesus, pipes up in the middle of this incident with an objection that seemed reasonable to everyone in the room. Why is she doing that? Isn't there so much ministry we can do without money? 300 denarii. We could feed so many poor people because that's what matters the most. Our social justice matters the most. Couldn't it be used for something more productive? Something that could have a more measurable impact? Three things I want to point out about Judas. Number one, obviously, it wasn't Judas's perfume. I know that seems kind of obvious, but it's like, Judas, mind your own business. If someone wants to do something with something that belongs to them, to Jesus, that's their business, not yours. You know, we could all learn a lot from this. We could all do better to instead of criticizing the way other people are serving or giving or not or whatever to Jesus, say, Lord, what about me? What do I need to be doing as an act of worship to you? So it wasn't his, he didn't have the right to say anything because it didn't belong to him. It wasn't the group resource. Mary's oil belongs to the group and we can redistribute it however we want. No, Mary's oil belonged to Mary and she chose to spend it on Jesus. Secondly, Judas's internal motive 
was different than his express motive. And this is a masterful plan of the enemy. He will say one thing, but he means another. John gives us a little behind the scenes, right? That Judas didn't care about the poor at all. He wanted the money because he held the money back. Now, why Jesus allowed Judas to carry the money bag is a whole other sermon within itself. It's pretty interesting stuff. But here's the point. Judas expressed one thing to get everyone thinking, oh yeah, that's good. Poor people, we love poor people. And in reality, his motive was greed. His motive was, man, 300 denarii in my pocketbook, you know, and I could do a little here, do a little here, and make it look like we're doing something good, and then I could take it for myself. That sounds like a pretty good deal. Sometimes I wonder if he would have sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver if he had 300 denarii in his money bag, but that, that's just how my brain works. But here, thirdly, it teaches us something valuable about our enemy, Satan. I believe that Judas, in this portrait, typifies Satan. What do you mean, Josh? He typifies Satan here. Satan always mocks and challenges the Christian's obedience and worship to the Lord. Always. When you take a step of faith, when you're going to say, I'm going to serve this person, I'm going to go to this place, I'm going to preach the gospel, whatever it is. When you give your life to say, I'm going to worship God with my life, you will hear things from the enemy, oftentimes speaking through other people. Why don't you spend your time, your effort, your money, your talents doing something more valuable? Why don't you just take some time to focus on yourself? I mean, that stuff is for you. You need that for things relating to you. Don't waste your potential on things that don't matter. You won't really have an impact anyway. Right? Just lie after lie, accusation after accusation. You're not good enough. You're going to work hard and it's not going to amount to anything. And that person won't really care. And that seed you plant won't really do anything. And it's just one lie after the next lie after the next lie with the intent to stop you from worshiping Jesus. But like Judas, the enemy's expressed motive is always different from his internal motive. You know what Satan's true motive is, right? He doesn't want people worshiping Jesus. Why? Because he wants all the worship for himself, just like Judas. And he knows anything that's not directed towards Christ can be redirected towards something that he's involved in. Satan from the beginning, being that angel, that cherub that covers, that created with the timbrels and the pipes, the so to speak, worship leader of heaven. I mean, his prideful fall was that he wanted that worship that belonged to God. And he still longs for it. And he will use all sorts of lies to try to stop the Christian from giving themselves to the cause of Christ. So how should we respond? We respond by blocking out the enemy's voice and focusing on the one we're worshiping rather than the voices around us. We need to let Jesus defend our worship as he always will and always does. Let's not forget that it was Adam and Eve's failure in the garden to listen to the right voice that got us all in this mess. What voice will you listen to? Well, the fourth question that I find in this passage is simply this. Is Jesus worth more than the perceived lack of return. Is Jesus worth more than the perceived lack of return? The other thing that strikes me about Mary's action is that she doesn't seem to think or care about what she's going to get out of the act itself. Right? Mary's mentality isn't, 
I'm going to give Jesus something valuable, and he's going to give me something back. In other words, I'll give to God so that I can get from God. No, that's the mentality of, that a lot of people have adopted today. Oh, plant the seed of faith so that you can be blessed a hundredfold. Well, that's a good motivation, <laughs> I guess. If I'm going to be blessed a hundredfold, I'll plant a seed of faith. What can I get from God? It's not Mary's thought. Mary's thought is, I have found someone that is so much more valuable than anything that I recognize that, no, that there's nothing I could give him that would be valuable enough to match his worth. Nothing. The only reason I'm only giving this is because this is all I have. If I had more, I'd give it. That's how much I think he's worth. This has nothing to do with what I get out of it. What she didn't know, though, is a characteristic of, of Jesus Christ, is that whenever someone loses their life for his sake, whenever someone gives himself for his cause, whenever someone sacrificially puts himself on the line for Christ, what they do get in return is far more valuable than what they gave away. The Bible tells us that Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached, her story will be told. And as we think about the moment I started to try to process this event in light of Jesus saying, she's preparing me for my burial. For weeks now, Jesus has been telling his disciples, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. The Son of Man is going to be put to death. And they're like, huh, what? Mm, yeah, no. And Peter's like, no, Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. You know, they don't get it. And it doesn't surprise me that only the women were listening. Mary, in her intuition, perceives a moment. Jesus has been telling this, there's something going on. I sense it. My treasure, I've been saving this. I've been saving this. I've been saving this for the moment. And he is the moment. This is a blessing for Jesus. And so she takes that pound. She lavishes it on his feet. The disciples are flabbergasted at this wasteful act, and Jesus is saying, she's preparing me for my burial. And now I'm thinking back, first century Judean context, right? No one is taking showers, no one's taking baths, no one's, they're just, you just kind of build up your smell, you know. And Jesus now goes, and then the night before he's betrayed, he finds himself in a room with his disciples, the upper room, instituting the acts of the elements of communion. This is my body, this is my blood. A little quiz, you guys will know this. What does Jesus do in the upper room to every one of his disciples? He washes their feet. He sets them an example. As I have done to you, so do to one another. I'm a serving, I've come to be the humble king. I've come to be the servant king. Who washed Jesus' feet? Nobody. You know what that means, right? That there's a pound, not a couple drops, that wouldn't suffice. Pound of costly, fragrant, aromatic oil on Jesus' feet. 
as he drags that cross, one step at a time up Calvary, he is nailed to that cross. His feet are pierced. His hands are pierced. He is pushed up on the hill, a mockery for all to see and to shame. And as he carries on that moment, Father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When the sins of all those who would trust in him, our worst moments, our greatest shame, our darkest thoughts, that knit, that horrible word, that horrible action is all coming upon him. He's absorbing it in his holiness and in his righteousness and in his perfection. The father is turning his face away. There's a brokenness of fellowship. On top of that, the physical suffering is that is more than anyone could imagine or bear. That's why crucifixion was considered the most gruesome of all deaths, Josephus said. And then enduring the shame. And it's all for us. He's up there. And what is he doing? The Bible says he's pouring out his life as an offering to God. And as the pain pierces through his veins and his nerves, and with every breath he has to lift up on his nerves and push up on his feet, his lungs filling with fluid, and he pushes up. And with every single breath, the fragrance of someone's worship is entering into his nostrils. She's preparing me. My life is being an offering. Worship, the Bible says, is like a fragrant incense that rises to the throne of God. And Jesus there bearing what no man could ever imagine, fathom, or try in all of their theology and all of their thinking and all of their writing, we have no idea the excruciation of the cross. And one comfort is that as Jesus is giving himself completely poured out as an offering of worship to God, he is smelling the incense of someone's extravagant gifts of worship that they gave to him. If Mary could have only known the value, it's more valuable than anything. Anything temporary that passes and perishes, you never know the outcome. True worship this is a picture of worship. I found that it is really and truly impossible to waste anything on Jesus. Even if you don't see the return here and now, there is a purpose. I want to make something very clear, lest someone might misunderstand. This message this morning is not a guilt trip or a legalistic plea for you to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and do something religious and go live in a hut so that you can be truly a spiritual person. What am I suggesting happens to someone who starts to truly see Jesus for who he really is? Well, like Mary, I suggest that the closer you get to Jesus, the more he increases in value until his value eclipses everything else that you have. To the point where all my time and my treasures and my talents become willingly surrendered for his use. 
It's not about my agenda anymore, God. It's not about even my religious acts. It's not about what I have in my... I just want to say, Lord, it's all yours. Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to touch? How do you want me to give? What do you want me to fight for? What do you want me to avoid? Right? It's learning that I can safely surrender to Jesus and not be in any danger, even though it feels dangerous sometimes. The closer you get to the person of Christ, the less concerned you become about how other people see you and the more concerned you become with how Jesus sees you. The less influenced you are by the opinions of everyone else and the more influenced you become, am I being obedient to Christ? The closer you get to Jesus, the more consumed you become with Christ, the less concerned you become with what God can do for you the more concerned you become with what you can do for him. You see, there is no such thing as wasted worship unless you waste your worship on something other than Christ. I believe that this story motivates us as we come to the communion table to take a look at how we see Jesus What place of value and worth do I really perceive in regards to what he's done, who he is, and what he deserves in my life? Perhaps you don't know Jesus today, and you might be asking yourself the question, man, I have a lot of stuff that matters to me. I have a lot of stuff that's valuable to me. Why would I want to willingly surrender that to this Jesus. Well, I would suggest to you that you consider the end of all things. Jesus said it this way, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? What you have can't purchase you peace with God. What you have, you can't trade for forgiveness of sin. What you have, you can't barter for eternal life. That's a gift from God through faith in Christ. And here's the thing. God doesn't ask you to give anything in order to get that gift. But what happens is when you start to see that gift for what it is, you just say, how can I not? How can I not give my all? It's safe in the hands of Jesus. And so as we come today... May the Spirit prompt us in our time as we reflect. May we just not do the elements like the drink the thing, eat the thing, get it over with. No. Let's get in the presence of God personally, individually, one at a time and reaffirm to Him His worth to us, how worthy He is of our love and of our worship, of our lives. And perhaps there are some things that God will just prompt you to re-surrender to his care and to his will even today. And I think that worship will be a sweet-smelling aroma that goes up before his presence that will truly bless his heart. Thanks for joining us today here on The Ascending Life. Pastor Josh Blevins had a great message to share today, and we trust that what you've heard has been an encouragement to you. 
If what you heard today has left you with some questions, we'd like to ask you to reach out. You can get in touch with us by calling us at 816-279-2090. If you need to hear that number again, it's 816-279-2090. You can also email us at mail at graceontheweb.org. Some of what you heard might be completely new to you. If that's the case and you're still trying to figure out what you believe about Jesus, feel free to go to theascendinglife.com and click on the Know Jesus tab. There you'll be pointed in the right direction to understand more about who Jesus is and how much He loves you. Here at Grace Calvary, our mission is to awaken people to the love, truth, and power of God. Do you want to hear more messages from Pastor Josh? Head over to theascendinglife.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast too. Again, that's theascendinglife.com. We appreciate you listening to this edition of The Ascending Life as we strive to put Jesus first. That's all the time we have for today, but we can't wait to get back into another enlightening teaching from Pastor Josh. Will you make plans to join us again? We hope so. There's so much more to learn and appreciate about God, so be sure to tune in next time on The Ascending Life. Reaching up, we're pressing